Om. Salam. Namaste. Greetings. This is Naeem Abdurafi, and this is Harlem University Radio. Um, our mission, encouraging the reading of what should be read, encouraging the writing of what should be written. Our Harlem University professors share memoirs they are writing in history they are reading. You, yes you, are invited to join the faculty. No degree necessary. So more about that. Um, the study of history is for the purpose of finding humanity. Humanity. What we can become, good and bad. Um, my per- personal interest is finding the good. We write history in order to find ourselves. We study history to find humanity. Was, is, can be. <clears throat> we write uh, we, we find ourselves by writing our history, or by writing history, especially our own history, especially memoirs. So, if you want to join the faculty uh, here at Harlem University, uh, you do that by uh, connecting with me and uh, offering to come on to the program and um, read some history or um, come on to the program and share the work that you're doing on your memoir. So the, the live broadcast takes place Tuesdays, 7 p.m. Eastern. Now, others can join that live broadcast by simply calling in at the call-in number. And uh, at at the end of whatever is scheduled, if we have time and we have plenty of time, I can always bring in callers uh, to to comment. So there are two kinds of, two ways to, you know, to become a part. You, you can you can arrange with me to be brought on to the show as a as a co-host and and do your sharing, or you can simply call in, and I'll I'll see you on the switchboard, and uh, invite you to uh, invite you to comment. So the information about um, all of this is at the Facebook page for the show, uh, and uh, that's. Harlem University Radio, all together, Harlem University Radio. That's the Facebook page. And, uh, well, you can just go to Facebook and do at Harlem University, and that will bring you to bring you to the page. Um, you can also connect with me uh, by going to the, um, uh, to the Twitter, uh, uh, which is uh, at... Uh, Radio Harlem 1, the numeral 1, Radio Harlem 1. Okay, Um, so I I mentioned, uh, I I point out the the time that we are live because that's when people can join the show. You you very well could be listening um, on demand, uh, either at Blog Talk Radio, uh, the uh, or or um, at the Anchor podcast platform or one of the platforms to which uh, Anchor distributes the show. So, again, the information about all of that is at the Facebook page, Harlem University Radio. So let's get to tonight's work. We're still talking about the Roman Empire. Um, that's very important history for humanity. 
Uh, we're uh, reading from uh, the text by Professors uh, Albert Kerr Heckel and uh, James G. Sigmund on the road to civilization, a world history, published in 1936. Um, I'll read uh, to you a few pages uh, from from that text, and then I'm going to add some uh, uh, some other information from another source um, uh, at the, when this is done. Okay, so we're at chapter 15, titled "Rome Under the Early Empire." Topic. Titles and Powers of uh, the Emperor. Although Julius Caesar was struck down by assassins, uh, that was 44 uh, BCE, uh, struck down by assassins with his work only half finished, his statesmanlike plans did not perish with him. His dream of a great Roman Empire was later realized. And, the, and an empire, uh, which uh, an empire which during the next two centuries brought all the peoples of southern Europe into civilized life. Excuse me for a second. I forgot to turn my phone off. And I will do that right now. All right. All right, so an empire which, which uh, during the next two centuries uh, brought all the peoples of southern Europe into civilized life. Rome continued in name uh, a republic, but in fact became an empire uh, with, with absolute authority in the, in the hands of a single man, and an empire... Um, we're using empire in the sense of of this, of there there being a a ruler with absolute authority, an emperor, if you will. Okay, uh, because Rome had actually begun empire building as a republic, which uh, accounts for uh, you know the problems that followed. Okay. Octavian had made himself master by uh, power, by the power of the sword. He preserved the outward forms of the Republic uh, only in order to hide his own sovereignty. He made the gesture of resigning from his extraordinary powers um, so as to have them restored to him by the Senate in 27 B.C thus gaining some legal foundation for his empire. The Senate conferred upon him the title Augustus, which had hitherto been applied only to the gods. As applied to Octavian, the name, the name was perhaps equivalent to the English expression, His Highness. Augustus, as we shall now call Octavian, assumed the title princeps, or first citizen, which was less offensive to loyal Republicans than king or dictator. But despite the democratic title, it was not long before Augustus controlled every branch of the administration of the state. The military forces, the provinces, the legislative bodies, the magistrates, and even the state religion. His title, Imperator, was an important one. It made him commander-in-chief of the military and naval forces uh, of the state, uh, the commander-in-chief of the military and naval forces of the state, and brought these forces under his absolute control. Every Roman soldier, wherever on duty, was under a solemn oath of obedience to the emperor and was never allowed to forget his obligation. Thus, the Roman Republic became a military empire, though Augustus did not make himself a military despot. 
He used his army not as an instrument of conquest, but as an agency for centralizing and stabilizing the empire as he found it. He restored peace to a war-weary world and gave the Roman state a chance to recuperate from a century of civil strife and anarchy. Augustus very shrewdly had the Senate invest him with the powers of the tribune. Under the Republic, the tribunes of the plebes, or common people, were elected annually. They had the right to vote any measure uh, which they regarded as opposed to uh, the interests of the people, had the right to veto uh, any measure which they regarded as opposed to the interests of the people. The tribunes could summon the Senate and place proposals before it. While in office, their persons were inviolable. By taking over these powers, Augustus assumed at least the appearance of constitutional authority, and he was able to veto any measure at any time. Being a tribune also increased his popularity with the common people, since he was thus their perpetual representative. Title, Augustus skillfully organizes his empire. Augustus accomplished an important reorganization of the provinces, adding to their number and and affecting far-reaching changes in their administration, which brought them under, under the direct control of the emperor. He used his absolutism to free them from corruption and plunder and to restore them uh, uh, and restore to them peace and prosperity. After his reform of the provinces, he turned his attention to the difficult task of bringing efficiency to the administration of Rome and Italy. He worked out with fine skill the delicate problems of his relationship to the Senate, the Assembly, and the magistrates, preserving these old Republican institutions, but carefully limiting their powers so as not to impair the supremacy of the emperor. He made the same skillful compromise between the old and the new in his religious and social reforms. The city was full of temples, but the people had forsaken the gods and departed from the morals which had contributed to the life and character of the early Romans. Augustus did much to restore the best of the ancient faith of duty to the gods. He also attempted to lead his people back to the robust ideals of early Roman society by encouraging more wholesome family relationships and legislating against divorce and immoralities which were degrading the private life of the people. Topic, the problem of succession. Sometime before his death, he concerned himself with the problem of a successor. To whom should his extraordinary powers be transmitted? He himself had received them from the Senate. Would the Senate continue to grant these powers after his death? And if so, who would enjoy them? Augustus shrewdly arranged to have his adopted son, Tiberius, associated with him as a colleague. So when Augustus died in in A.D. uh, 14, uh, after nearly a half century of rule, the Senate conferred his powers on Tiberius. Tiberius was the first and most capable of a line of emperors, the Julian line, who claimed descent from Julius Caesar and Augustus. But they contributed so little personally to the making of civilization that they deserve no more than passing notice here. For 50 years after the death of Augustus, these so-called Caesars were chosen from his descendants. Then the arm came uh, Then uh, the army came to have such great influence that it made and unmade emperors. At first, 
this power rested with so first this power rested with soldiers stationed in Rome, known as the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorians were were a body of about ten thousand veterans established by Augustus as a military escort to the emperor. The emperor was still constitutionally dependent on the Senate for support, but he depended on the weapons of the Praetorian Guard. That's where his support was. With the death of the notorious Nero in AD 68, and uh, when we finish this reading, I I will uh, share some details from, from another source concerning Nero. So with his death, AD 68, the Julian line ended. A year of anarchy followed, during which rival allegiance in the provinces proclaimed a succession of emperors, ending with Vespasian. Vespasian. Thus, emperors were no longer made in Rome, quote-unquote. Despite the turbulent politics, the empire had enjoyed a century of peace. Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, were known as the Flavian uh, Caesars. They ushered in a second century of peace, which resulted in a high level of prosperity for the Roman world. The Flavians... uh, restrained the power of both both the army and the Senate, and by a wise use of absolute authority, brought order and unity to the state. They were followed by a new dynasty of five successive rulers known as the Antonines, or the good emperors. Under them, imperial succession was determined not by birth, but by adoption, which was the process that, uh, um, well, to some extent, because uh, Augustus was actually related to Caesar. But under under the Antonines, um, imperial succession was determined not by birth. You didn't have to be related to the emperor, but by adoption. Each emperor prepared his quote-unquote adopted son for the succession by making him a colleague in government. Adopted sons shadowed uh, the the emperor. Uh, Topic, expansion of the empire to the greatest extent. Beginning with Augustus, the rulers were concerned with the great problem of extending and protecting the Roman frontiers. Augustus devoted himself to the organization and consolidation of the state rather than to conquest. Only late in his reign did he attempt to extend the northern frontier to the Elba. But the defeat of the armies under Varus uh, in AD 9, uh, or Common Era 9, 9 Common Era, brought an abrupt end to this policy. When Augustus died, his empire was bounded by the Rhine, the Danube, the Black Sea, the Euphrates, the Sahara Desert, and the Atlantic Ocean. The Mediterranean, in effect, was a Roman lake. An important extension of the state was made under Claudius, who sent a successful expedition into Britain in A.D. 43, or 43 Common Era, and added the southern portion of the island, the province Britannia. Later, the British frontier was pushed farther uh, northward and secured by uh, a line of defenses. Trajan, uh, his dates are A.D. 98, through through 117, uh, to make the lower Danube frontier secure, crossed the river and crushed the king of of Dacia. To make the lower Danube, okay, 
did he cross the line? I think he did. Maybe not. Uh, he made it a province. You need to look look at at, uh, at, a, at a map and the relationship of the of, of the uh, Danube to the ah okay. He crossed the Danube, which heretofore had been a frontier, crossed the river and crushed the kingdom of, of, of Dacia. He made it a province, and so thoroughly Romanized it. Uh, that it is today known as Romania. Trajan, ambitious to build a great Oriental empire, entered upon a war of aggression in which he defeated the Parthians in Persia and added Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria to the empire as provinces. This represents the expansion of Rome to its greatest extent. For these conquests by, by Trajan in the east were abandoned by his his successor, Hadrian. <clears throat> Topic. Trend toward absolute monarchy. There were changes in the internal organization of the government under the emperors. Although Augustus declared that he had restored the republic, Rome steadily followed a tendency toward military monarchy. Constitutionally, Augustus got his power from the Senate, but the powers conferred by the Senate made him absolute, absolute master of the government, powers which he was careful to conceal to keep up the fiction of a republic. Tiberius was impatient with this fiction. Tiberius was a true military man. Okay. One, of, one of the the most famous generals. Anyway, certain attitude concerning government that was a bit different from Augustus. Tiberius was impatient with this fiction and, and supported by the army, he put an end even to the appearance of government by the people. Claudius created an official class from the servants of his household. Before the end of the first century, there was a definite drift toward monarchy. Hadrian uh, who followed Trajan, was a practical administrator. He made important changes in the government by organizing it into departments under officials with definite functions, thus creating a bureaucratic system of civil service. The Senate was treated with formal courtesy, but was gradually crowded out of political power. A bureaucracy exists to exist and uh, to entrench its power. And uh, this is what happened then, and this is what has always happened. Okay, my, that was my commentary. I didn't read that. Um, changes in position of the citizen under early empire. That's the topic. During the two centuries from Augustus, to Marcus Aurelius. So let's say Augustus uh, 27 or so uh, BC, uh, BCE or BC, to Marcus Aurelius, who died in 180, uh, common era, OAD. So during the two centuries from Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, the Roman citizen lost his voice in the government. Under the Constitution, the people had the right to pass laws and elect all officers of the state. But in practice, this right disappeared. Roman citizens not only ceased to legislate and elect, but even their popular assemblies were suppressed. Lawmaking came to belong theoretically to the Senate and the emperor combined. But with the support of the army, the emperor easily cowed the senators into doing his will. The emperor became the sole magistrate, and he appointed his assistants. The old citizen army of the republic was transformed into a standing army 
for professional soldiers. These were drawn from all parts of the empire and were, for the most part, uh, uh, provincials or barbarians. The barbarians, for the most part, are you know, the, the various Germans that, that came into the fold. At times, entire German tribes were enlisted in the army under their own chiefs. Well, if you were to think about it, you, 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 you see the, uh, the beginning. Well, this is not really the beginning, but, but certainly an important step of uh, the conquest of, uh, of Rome uh, by the quote-unquote barbarians. You know, the, the German tribes. The loss of economic independence for the mass of Roman citizens begun under the Republic continued in imperial times. Many of the genteel unemployed became dependent or quote-unquote clients of the rich. In return for flattering courtesies to their patron, they received from him gifts of food or money. About 200,000 citizens received a monthly allowance of grain from the state. That's, that's a big number when you consider that the population was, uh, the total population was a million and a half, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay, topic. Roman peace, or what is known as Pax Romana, Roman peace. The period covering first two centuries of the empire, from Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, uh, was one of profound and universal peace, a time of, quote-unquote, healing for the whole human race. Now, I don't know uh, to whom we uh, owe this, uh, this direct quote. I mean, was it Tacitus or uh, uh, Suetonius? Again, I'm not sure. Plutarch, okay. But anyway, healing for the whole human race. Augustus closed the doors of the temple of Janus, god god of gates and of beginnings, in 29 BC. The ceremony marked the end of, of centuries of violence. The gates, always open in time of war, had been closed only once before in Roman history. Rome had so completely subjugated the peoples of the Mediterranean world that she ended for them ages of almost constant war. Roman legions on the frontiers protected the empire, uh, 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 protected the empire against invasions of the barbarians outside the empire. Anyone outside the empire is a barbarian. This enduring Roman peace, Pax Romana, gave a security which encouraged the development of commerce, the growth of industries, an increase in the number of cities, and a general advance in civilization. Perhaps the greatest contribution of Rome to our civilization was the establishment of these two centuries of peace around the Mediterranean. For during this time, the Greco-Roman culture became so widely spread and so deeply rooted that it survived later centuries of invasions and formed the basis of our civilization. Topic. Peoples of the ancient world become Romans. Rome not only brought the civilized world under one government, She Romanized that world. Magnificent highways, military and post roads connected the city with every part of her empire, thus bringing her into contact with all the peoples in in that great area. With travel made safe everywhere, trade flourished. The Roman traders were, quote unquote, missionaries of civilization carrying to every outlying section of the state, not only their wares, but the Latin language and Roman culture. The Latin language, when spoken by the provincials, differed more and more from its written form and became the basis 
of the modern Romance languages, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and Romanian. Roman culture itself had been strongly influenced, it will be remembered, by the Hellenistic world. When Rome conquered Greece, Roman civilization was in in turn conquered by Greek civilization. Greek religion, art, literature, and philosophy were adopted as models. The Greek became the teacher of the Roman. It was in the West that the Roman became a great civilizer. In the provinces from which have developed modern Spain, France, Belgium, Switzerland, and England. Military camps in the provinces and along the Rhine and the Danube grew into thriving cities with all the features of Roman civilization. Excuse me. Rome made a second conquest of Gaul. This time, not with the Roman legions, but with Roman culture. Roman traders swarmed everywhere in the province, carrying Latin civilization to the long-haired blonde Celts. Three centuries earlier, when Caesar entered Gaul, he found only rude villages. Now Gaul could boast 116 flourishing cities. So we're in the, uh, we're talking now the, uh, the third century. Elsewhere, also, the various peoples of the great Roman Empire developed a unity of spirit. Britons, Egyptians, Africans, as well as Gauls, and many others called them, call themselves Romans. Okay, so what we will do now is I'm going to share with you some details to consider uh, the um, the flowery uh, accolades, I guess we'll, we'll call them, um, showered on the Roman Empire by our authors. Um, and um, so we'll talk about talking in, in just a bit of detail about Nero. So, you know, Nero is um, uh, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's, you know, we know him as a villain. Um, um, and, and, you know, we, 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 we know that uh, on his watch, um, uh, the, the apostle Peter was uh, crucified, we, we understand. And uh, on, on his watch, possibly, the apostle Paul uh, was beheaded. And be, before that, um, there was, you know, the, the famous um, of fire uh, in, in Rome, and I think that was in um, 64 yeah, A.D., uh, when most of the city burnt to the ground. Um, Nero wasn't, he wasn't present. He was the emperor. He wasn't present. Um, and and some, some claim that he himself was responsible for the fire, but he blamed uh, the Christians. And with that set off a horrible, a tremendous persecution of, 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 of Christians. And he also initiated um, an, an, an attitude that, um, you know, eventually led to the um, uh, 
the destruction of of Jerusalem, the the, the total destruction of, of 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 the temple in in 70 A.D. and and in large numbers of uh, of deaths um, in 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 Jerusalem and and, and Judea. Um, so let's um, let's read a little more about um, Nero, and so that we might um, consider consider the uh, the accolades being showered on the the uh, on the on the Roman Empire. So the title of this article. Uh, the author of which is David Leaf. The author is found is it's found in the Daily Mail. Uh, I don't know if I have the date for this, but it will. Uh, I will. I'll, I'll post the link. Oh, Tuesday, May third, twenty twenty-two. I'll post the link in, at the uh, Facebook page. The title of the article is "Wine, Women, and Slaughter." The Truth Behind Emperor Nero's Pleasure Palace. Dusk, and as the shadows lengthened over the streets of ancient Rome, the early evening choir shadowed by a chorus of piercing screams. It is the beginning of another of Emperor Nero's infamous orgies. Peering out of the palace windows, the emperor's drunk guests are confronted by a shocking sight. A dozen terrified men, smeared with tar and bound to wooden stakes. And then, at a signal from Nero, they are set alight. Their agonized cries accompanied by the hoots of the half-naked dancing girls. Burning these Christians, Nero's guests, is the perfect way to illuminate his magnificent gardens. In Nero's sadistic world, such barbarity was commonplace. So he was not a lone actor you know, among the Romans. And it was at its most inventive and acute at the party staged at his fabled rotating dining dining room. This wondrous structure, part of his magnificent golden house palace, was described by the Roman historian uh, Suetonius in the years following the emperor's, emperor's eventual suicide in A.D. 68. Quote, all the dining rooms had ceilings of fretted ivory, the panels of which could slide back and let a, uh, and, and let a rain of flowers or a perfume from hidden sprinklers fall on the guests. The chief banqueting room was circular and revolved perpetually night and day in imitation, in imitation of the motion of the celestial bodies. End quote. <clears throat> This is Suetonius. For centuries, historians have debated whether such a marvel really existed. But this week came news of an extraordinary discovery. Digging on Rome's Palatine Hill, where emperors traditionally erect their most extravagant palaces, archaeologists unearthed a circular perimeter wall, which they believe may have been part of the legendary building. They also found a stone pillar some 13 feet thick and several large stone spheres, which they believe may have supported a circular floor more than 50 feet in diameter. By the way, this this compound of Nero uh, was about um, 300 acres. We may, we may get to that. I don't know. But some experts believe that the spheres were kept in constant motion by canals flowing below. Others speculate that the mechanism 
was cranked by slaves, probably both. But however it worked, this endlessly spinning pleasure dome appears to have witnessed some of the most unsettling scenes in Roman history, with sexual excess and sadism commonly on the menu. One of history's most bloody tyrants, Nero appears to have derived much of his chilling ambition from his wealthy widowed mother, uh, Agrippina. Her first husband, Nero's father, died of natural causes, but she is widely suspected of murdering her second. She embarked on her third marriage to the emperor, Emperor Claudius in AD 49, and although he already had a son, Britannicus, by another wife, she manipulated him into adopting Nero as his heir. So Nero is able to become emperor. She then had Claudius killed with poison mushrooms, clearing the way for her son to inherit the empire in A.D. 54. Then, just 16, Nero was described by Suetonius as being of average height with a prominent belly and a spotty complexion. Quote, he never wore the same garment twice. It is said that he never made a journey with less than a thousand carriages, his needles shod with silver. Those were his, the horseshoes of his mules. He also had a terrible and vengeful temper. When, less than six months into his reign, Nero suspected a plot to replace him, surprise, surprise, uh, with Britannicus, he followed his mother's example and killed his 15-year-old stepbrother with poison mushrooms. Soon, even his mother was subjected to his murderous gaze. She is believed to have conducted a lurid, incestuous affair with her son to maintain control over him. But he soon tired of her constant interference and had her stabbed to death in A.D. 59. Before long, it was his wife, uh, it was his wife Octavia's turn. After divorcing her on a false charge of adultery, he banished her from Rome and made her maids, uh, and, and had her maids tortured to death. But this wasn't enough to satisfy Nero's bloodlust. Soon afterwards, he cut off Octavia's head. Now, this is his wife and presented it as a trophy to his mistress, his mistress Papia. Papia, okay? Papia became a second wife, but not, but not for long. When she complained, turned home late from the races, Nero kicked his pregnant wife and her unborn born baby to death. Nero then married a third time. So clearly, you know, he's a madman, but... He's not a lone actor, and uh, the tone was set uh, for him, and not only by his mother, and he sets the tone. That's my point. I'll read a little more. Nero then married a third time after forcing the husband of his intended bride, Messalina, uh, to commit suicide. Disguising himself with caps and wigs, he delighted in creeping into the seedier quarters of Rome to beat up drunks who would be stabbed and thrown into the sewers if they put up a fight. Unsurprisingly, Nero became ever more unpopular with his people, not least uh, after the great fire of Rome, which raged, uh, which raised large swaths of the city in A.D. 64. So, yes, I've mentioned that. Um, so it was in, 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 in 66 that there was the, um, you know, the, the, the massacre, massacre of, uh, of Christians. Um, no, 
out to 64, and then something similar in, in, in Judea, and then in 70, the, the temple is in, in Jerusalem are, are burnt down. Some alleged that Nero had deliberately ordered the conflagration, that is the fire, to make way for the ultimate statement of his power, the golden house. Certainly soon afterwards, taxes were raised to fund the construction of this fabulously ostentatious palace. The entrance was guarded by a 120-foot bronze statue of Nero. Surprise, surprise. While inside palace grounds, while inside the palace grounds were an amphitheater and a complex of bathhouses, exotic creatures were left free to roam the gardens. Let's see. Yeah, a little bit more, and then we'll be done. But the piece de resistance, de resistance was the rotating dining room where Nero would stage his infamous feasts. There guests, there, guests would dine on the most extraordinary delicacies, including peacock, swan, stuffed sow's wombs, and roasted dormice. I don't know what that is. D-O-R-M-I-C-E. Occasionally, vomit into special bowls to allow them to continue their culinary orgy. Gorging on gallons of wine, they retired only to enjoy sex between courses. And to keep the party going, the bisexual Nero invited male and female prostitutes to mingle with his guests. One of his favorite party tricks was to dress up in the skin of a wild animal and to have himself imprisoned in a cage while helpless young men and women were tethered to posts in front of him, tied to posts in front of him. He would then ravage them one by one, roaring like a beast as his spawning admirers applauded. He also regarded himself as a talented musician and writer, and if there were no Christian to burn, he might then insist on subjecting his audience to his lute strumming or interminable poetry recitals. Nero often inflicted such performances on the people of Rome, appearing in theaters and insisting that the doors be locked so not, nobody could leave until it finished. Similarly, similarly, there was no respite for Nero's guests in the rotating dining room. On, on, and on the parties went until finally they were allowed to leave. The only consolation for those who abhorred such evenings was that the rotunda, the conascio rotunda, as the rotating hall was known, did not turn for long. The Golden House was completed in A.D. 68, uh, the same year in which Nero faced a revolt by those sick of high taxation and the emperor's profligate spending. Declared a public enemy by the Senate, Nero was forced to commit suicide by stabbing himself in the throat, stopping only to lament, quote, what an artist the world loses in me, end quote. After his death, the palace was stripped of its treasures, and within a decade, the site had been filled, filled in and built over. It was only rediscovered in the 15th century when a local youth fell into the remains of the structure. Within days, people were letting themselves down on ropes so they could admire the elaborate wall paintings. Okay, so this is the 15th century. That remained. Among them, the artists Raphael and Michael, Michelangelo, who carved their names into the walls. So they were the, the people who lowered themselves into the, uh, into the remains. Well, for centuries more, the site kept secret its greatest treasure until the discovery announced this week. Uh, one day, 
the original revolving hall might even turn. We can only hope that this time is not the setting for such an for such unbridled unbridled horrors. So uh, there you have, uh, listeners, our uh, our ancestors. That and again, I will put this uh, put this link on on the uh, on the page. And let me see if okay, I I haven't been joined by anyone, so I'm uh, free to bid uh, my listeners uh, goodbye. And I thank you for your attendance and your and your forbearance. And uh, have a blessed night and a blessed day and week to come. And and I uh, hope that uh, we are able to get together again next Tuesday or uh, on demand again at the uh, – well, you can find out again. You go to the Facebook page, Harlem Radio University, Harlem – excuse me, Harlem University Radio, and get the information concerning connected, connecting with the uh, – in fact, you'll find a uh, links to the Anchor podcast, and then and when you go there, you can see uh, the other podcast platforms uh, to 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 which uh, um, the uh, the show is is distributed. The show podcast podcast is distributed. So again, uh, thank you very much, and uh, with that, uh, shalom. Salam, so long.